morning, everyone. Uh, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 17, that is the section we will be in today. I'm sorry for those who came hoping for some kind of election day message or anything like that, but uh, we've got some acts to get through. And I was looking and, and thinking, we're over halfway through the book of Acts, so that means sometime in the next year or two, I'm going to have to figure out where to go next. The, <laughs> the easy thing about uh, picking a book like that and, and going through it is, uh, well, one, I never have to sit down and figure out what I'm going to preach on next, and it's kind of just right there. And, and a second thing is, if I'm going through the whole book of something, there isn't anything that I can just skip. I can't uh, come across a part and say, ooh, this is a little too difficult, or ooh, this, uh, uh, I'm going to have some issues going through this. Nope, I'm still going to have to go through it. But uh, anyway, uh, we're in Acts chapter 17 now. I will, uh, and we're only going to go through the first 15 verses of this chapter. I'll read it, we'll pray, and we will get on with our message. Now, when they had traveled through... Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that the gospel was proclaimed, and it was proclaimed throughout the world, starting in Jerusalem and going out to the ends of the earth to the point that we 
on the other side of the planet 2,000 years later are able to hear the good news of what Jesus has done. We thank you for the account that is recorded here. We pray that we would be blessed by it, that we would learn from your God-breathed scriptures. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we remember last time that Paul and his company was in Philippi, and they kind of had to get driven out of town. Remember that they took them, beat them in public, and uh, attempted to send them away secretly, and Paul wouldn't have it. And they come and implore them to leave the city, which is just fine with Paul, because Paul has other places that he needs to go. So the, the brethren encourage them, and they depart. And they travel through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So the company travels to this other city, Thessalonica. Thessalonica was one of the major cities. It had previously been a capital, the capital city of the entire region. One author calls Thessalonica the metropolis of Macedonia. And remember, they're in the Macedonian region. Another, uh, one ancient author even calls Thessalonica the mother of all Macedonia. The population of Macedonia was expected to be, was uh, estimated to be between 20,000 and 100,000 people. And this was a free city, meaning they could govern themselves freely, yet they still had loyalties to Rome, to the, Royal, to the Roman Empire. So this is a big city, and Paul often would set his targets on big cities. He would go to these great big cities to preach the gospel there. Paul had big targets in mind, we'll say. And when we catch up with Paul, and he arrives at Thessalonica, and we see that he does, according to his custom, go to the synagogue. This is the pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts. Whenever Paul would get to a new city, he goes to the synagogue so that he could speak to the Jews. And in verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went there for three Sabbaths, and he reasoned, from the, uh, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So three Sabbaths, Paul goes, and he reasons. He has a dialogue with these Jews who are in the synagogue. And we read that he explained and gave evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And just as we've seen throughout the New Testament scriptures, uh, Paul follows the pattern of preaching the Christ, preaching the Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, at this point in time, the New Testament was not yet written. However, the people were still people of the book. They still had a Bible. They still had that authoritative source, the scriptures that they would go to, and they would use these scriptures to prove the things about Jesus were so. Paul goes and he reasons from the scriptures, and he preaches Christ from the scriptures. And this is a pattern that's set all the way back with the Lord Jesus, we remember what uh, happened with Jesus in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus met the men on the road to Emmaus. What did he say to them when uh, they were befuddled by what had happened? Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
So what happened? The Jews were confused. They said, well, there was this man who came along. We thought he was the Messiah, but then something very unexpected happened. They took him and they put him to death. And then something even stranger happened. We heard that the tomb was empty and we don't know what to make of it. And what does Jesus say? Didn't you believe all that the scriptures taught concerning the Messiah? And he opened the scriptures to them and he showed them that the scriptures indeed prophesied these things. What happened to Christ was expected. What happened to Christ was the fulfillment of what God had said and had been saying for hundreds and hundreds of years to the people of Israel. And just as God said it would happen, it happened with the Lord Jesus. Jesus says this to his apostles shortly before his ascension. He says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all the things which are written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again on the third day. What happened to Christ was expected. Maybe not expected by the Jewish people and their high hopes for the Messiah, but it was expected by God. It was prophesied. It was predestined by God, and it was spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. And this model that Paul is following of going back to the Old Testament scriptures to preach Christ is the very same model that we see throughout the book of Acts. When we look at Peter's first sermon, the first New Testament sermon, so to speak, we read, uh, and when we read that sermon, we, when we look at it, we see that about half of it is Old Testament quotations. It's an amazing thing that we have Peter who's proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and how is he doing it? He's going back to the Old Testament and explaining them. And that's exactly what we find the Apostle Paul doing here. He goes to the synagogue because at the synagogue it's expected that they would be reading the scriptures, that they would be discussing the scriptures. And what does Paul now have? Well, he recognizes that the scriptures had been fulfilled. So he goes to the synagogue so that he can explain these things. And we read that he explained and he gave evidence that the Christ had to rise from the dead, that the Messiah had to rise from the dead. So Paul explains these things uh, because, remember, this was not necessarily the common teaching of the day. They had messianic hope, yes, but they certainly didn't expect the Messiah to come and die. So Paul has to explain it. Why did the Messiah have to die? Why did the Messiah have to die on a cross the way that he did? Well, he came and he died to pay our sin debt. The wages of sin is death, and the only way that we can escape the wrath of God for our sins is if someone takes our place. And that is what the Messiah came to do. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, says that when you were dead in your sin in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death of debt consisting of decrees against us which were hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. How is it that we can have peace with God? How is it that our debt towards God can be paid? The wages of sin is death, 
But the Messiah came. It was necessary for the Messiah to die to pay those wages. And just as he had to die, he also had to be raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the atonement that we have with Christ. Without his resurrection, there would be no guarantee of peace with God. His resurrection showed that the sacrifice of Christ was accepted by God. And the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians says this, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. But now that Christ has been raised uh, from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And because Christ rose again from the dead, we too are guaranteed of a resurrection. If Christ hadn't risen from the dead, then what would his death mean? Jewish people were put to death by Romans all the time. It would have just been another, it wouldn't have even been a historical record at this point. It would have just been another Jew claiming to be someone who was put to death by the Romans. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we too have the guarantee of salvation, and we too also can look forward to the resurrection. So this is what Paul is doing. He's explaining this concept to the Jewish, his Jewish audience, why the Christ had to suffer, why he had to die, why he had to be raised from the dead, and how is he doing this? Well, he's giving evidence, and he gives that evidence from the scriptures. Remember, Paul didn't just come and he's not just making this up. What he's doing is he's pointing back to this old revelation that was pointing ahead to what was going to happen to Jesus. One of the passages that we all uh, are familiar with is found in Isaiah 53, where we see both the death and the resurrection of the servant of God. So Paul likely would have pointed to Isaiah 53 and any number of other places in Scripture. Isaiah 53, verses 8 through 11, says that by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And, his gener- and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people for whom the stroke was due? So cut off from the land of the living. Who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? He was killed. The servant of the, of the Lord was killed. His grave was assigned with wicked men, And yet he was with a rich man in his death. He died because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. What happens to guilt offerings? They are killed. So the scriptures are clear that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, had to die. And yet we read this. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. Well, hold on a second. Your days typically aren't prolonged by you being put to death. That's usually where your days end, right? So it's kind of a strange thing, but we see that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, having been put to death, will have his days prolonged. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by knowledge of him, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So here's a passage where we see both the death 
of the servant of the Lord, as well as him being alive again after his death. And what's the Apostle Paul doing? He's saying, of course, the Messiah had to suffer. He had to die, but he also had to rise again. One of the places that uh, the apostles have gone to a couple of times already in the book of Acts is from Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 10. Paul, uh, Peter quoted this in his first recorded sermon. We also have Paul uh, quoting it elsewhere. And what does it say? You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This being a Psalm of David. And what was the point that they made? Well, guess what? David is still dead, he's still in the ground, and he has undergone decay. So David was not talking about himself. So who is he talking about? He was talking about his son, the son of David, the Messiah. So of course the Messiah had to be raised again from the dead. So Paul, he's pulling all of these Old Testament things together, and he's showing this has to happen to the Messiah. He's finally giving them the... uh, the, the class on the doctrine of the Messiah that they had likely been lacking. And what does he do? What's the point of all of this? The point of all of this is so Paul can take all of this together and then say, as we see in verse 3, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He does it all to point to Jesus. Who fits the bill? Who is the one that this is applied to? Jesus. Of all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, there is only one person that they apply to, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. And now the Apostle Paul is saying these things have taken place. They have taken place in the man Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the one whom we must turn to. One author uh, says... uh, puts this in an interesting way on how these prophecies could only apply to Jesus. One author says this, I once asked someone how many numbers one has to get right to win the lottery uh, and to win the big prize. And he told me that six numbers must be given correctly. And then he asked him, how much money do you suppose someone would get if they won the big prize Ten times, right? What would happen if someone went to the lottery station and he had ten winning tickets? Untold riches, right? Is that, is that the expectation? And then he goes, and then he says this, no, the winner would likely get nothing but a long sentence in jail because the only way that he could get six correct numbers ten different times is if he is crooked, Right? Something like that would be so rigged, it would be obvious. The odds are too astronomical. In the same way, no one can predict in advance with exact precision what will happen to, the, to our world in the future or in the life of a human being. And yet, it is an indisputable fact that over a thousand specific prophecies from antiquity regarding the Messiah were fulfilled. Specifically, particularly, and perfectly in the person of Jesus. And then he says this, If skeptics would take time to look at those prophecies, their mouths would be shut forever about any doubt of the divine origin of the scriptures and Jesus. Why is it that so many skeptics will say of the Old Testament, Oh no, 
that, that couldn't have been compiled before Jesus came. That obviously came after Jesus. His followers came and took whatever they could, attributed it to ancient authors, and that's where the, New Tes- the Old Testament came from. Because nothing can be that precise regarding someone who had not yet lived. Because no one actually knows the future. That's the argument. But we see Jesus fulfills all of these, showing that the Old Testament truly is of God, and God prophesied that these would happen. And that's what Paul is doing. He is saying God prophesied it would happen, and it happened. It's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see as a result of Paul's teaching, his persuasion, his going to the Scriptures, that some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, and a number of the prominent women. So some of the Jews were persuaded. Many of the God-fearers were persuaded, a number of prominent women. And we see here that people of all stripes and social classes are believing in the gospel because it's not just good news for the Jew. It's not just good news for the one who attends synagogue. This is good news for all people, good news at all times that Jesus came and he died and rose again from the dead. But we continue reading, the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason, and they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And what's another thing that we see? There's a couple things in the book of Acts that you can almost set your watch to, right? What happens when Paul goes to a city? He goes to the synagogue, of course, because that's the pattern. How do they preach Christ? Well, they preach Christ from the scriptures. That's the pattern. What happens when the gospel starts to get a foothold in a city? Opposition begins to rise. That's the pattern. And we saw that all the way back in the very beginning, where the gospel is proclaimed and opposition to it rises. And we see here that it's the Jews who are the ones who are opposed to the gospel. And this can be kind of confusing to us. You would think that the Jews would be the ones who would be the most accepting of it, right? Because it's proclaimed directly out of their scriptures. If anyone's going to believe the Old Testament, it would be the Jews, right? But we see that's not what happens. We see that Jews becoming jealous. And that's the thing, right? They become jealous. And they take along some wicked men from the marketplace. And they form a mob. And this uh, is not unlike the motives. What's the motive here? The Jews are jealous. It's not that Paul is teaching anything wrong. It's not that he's teaching anything false. What's he doing? He's preaching directly from the scriptures, right? Uh, It's always amazing when uh, you encounter someone who, who claims to be a Christian and you read the Bible to them and immediately they don't like what they hear. And they say, oh, that's just your interpretation. And you come back and say, actually, no, I just read it right? Uh, Some of these things that are so plain, and yet we see they're jealous. They're jealous of Paul. They're jealous of his following. Perhaps they're jealous that Paul is able to get so many of these God-fearing Gentiles to join his cause, right? These are Jews that have been working night and day trying to get a single proselyte, and here we have multitudes of Gentiles following after Paul and his teaching. So they're jealous, And this isn't unlike the motives of the Jews who had Jesus charged as a criminal. Mark chapter 15, verse 10, says that Pilate was aware that the chief priests handed Jesus over because of envy. 
What's the real reason they handed Jesus over? Because of envy, because they were jealous, because they saw what Jesus had and they thought that, it, uh, that they deserved to have the attention. So just like the Jews in Jerusalem, these Jews in Thessalonica were more than happy to not only work against the gospel, but we see they also team up with people they would otherwise consider to be their enemies in opposition to the gospel. They go out and they gather wicked men from the marketplace. And uh, throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see this as well. We see people like the Pharisees coming along and teaming up with the Sadducees. And we, when we think of Pharisees and Sadducees, we just think, oh, all Jewish, put them in the same bucket. Well, they were entirely different ideologically. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in all the Bible and things like that. They believed in the resurrection. Sadducees, they were the religious liberals of the day. They cut out all the books of the Bible except for the first five. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe there would be a resurrection. So completely opposed to one another, right? These two would constantly be butting heads. But what do they do when Jesus comes to the scene? They're more than happy to team up, to try to trick Jesus, uh, to try to get him into trouble. We even see them teaming up with the Herodians. So these are people who were loyal to Herod, uh, who was uh, by no means a righteous man. But they're more than happy to team up to put Jesus to death. And they even will team up with the Romans, people considered to be their enemies to do their dirty work. And here, we see the Jewish men of Thessalonica doing something very similar. We see the Jews, they go to the market and they gather wicked men. And the people that they gather, these uh, wicked men is a a good description, but uh, there's some other descriptions that they could be described with. Uh, These are people who would be the low lives, right? You might have a translation that says the rabble. So these are men who hang around the market because they have nothing better to do. Uh, One commentator even put it this way. He said that probably the best translation of this would be the bums. So the Jews go out and they find all the worthless bums in the market who have nothing better to do than cause trouble. And they go out and they start a riot. They band together and they form a mob and they attack the house of Jason. And we don't know much about this character Jason. Jason, We know that uh, he hosted Paul and Silas, but we really aren't told much about him. And Um, but they go to this house of Jason. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they drag Jason out along with a few of the other believers. It's amazing to see this opposition. It's amazing to see who will team up in opposition to God. We see, when we look at the world, we see groups of people who are mortal enemies of each other, but the ultimate enemy is is God and the Messiah. And that's what Psalm 2 says. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So while you may have two opposing parties in the world, there's one thing that they agree on, that they will not be subject To Jesus, they will not be subject to God, and they will not be subject to his word. And that's what we're seeing here, people banding together to go against the apostles. And we see the charges that they bring up against them. What do they say? They bring them before the authorities and uh, charge them with all kinds of things. 
These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Right? So remember what the original reason for this was. They were jealous, but I can't take someone to the court of law and say, well, he's more popular than I am, therefore he should be punished. So they come up with uh, different charges. And this is also exactly what happened with Jesus. It's amazing to see the parallels between this and when Jesus was brought in. What are the charges they bring against him? They've upset the world and they've come here also. What did they say of Jesus in Luke chapter 23? I'll just read it. They kept insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. What did they say of the Apostle Paul? They act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. What did they say of Jesus? We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Finally, what do they say? They say that there is another king, Jesus. Remember when Pilate said to the Jews, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Amazing, these, these parallels. I just thought it was worth pointing out. But opposition to God, opposition to Christ, in many ways will always look the same. In many ways, they will always look the same. So, with everyone uh, being riled up, we have Jason. We read uh, that the crowd was uh, stirred up and the city authorities were stirred up and they eventually receive a pledge from Jason and the others and Jason is finally released. Um, this You can think of this as bail money that Jason had to pay to guarantee that there would no longer be any more trouble that is caused. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, recalls some of this mistreatment. In in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, I'll just read it. Paul says to the Thessalonians, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also suffered the same things at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did to the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and do not please God and are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So it's not just Paul that undergoes this, but the Thessalonian believers in general. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the world. Opposition rises to the proclamation of the gospel. They hate the proclamation of the gospel because in many ways, the charges that they brought up against the Apostle Paul were true, right? They were charged with upsetting the world. What'd they say? Paul and Silas, they're upsetting the whole world with their message and now they've come here. Well, why is the world so upset? Well, think of the world and the world system Starting with the fall, the world has been turned upside down. The world is content to continue in its sin, to continue in its wickedness, to continue in its destruction. And what does the gospel do? Well, the gospel comes and seeks to flip that back, to make wrong things right, to 
take the evil and turn it into good. But the world does not like that. The world is very much opposed to the gospel. They're very much opposed to the claims of Christ. They're very much opposed to the kingship of Christ as well. So continuing on uh, into verse 10. So Paul, immediately they sent out Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. So Paul and Silas are forced to flee. Uh, They left by night. They had to leave quickly, likely out of concern for their safety. And they traveled to Berea, which is about 45 miles southwest of Thessalonica. Uh, So eh, about a 45-minute drive. No, <laughs> they, they didn't have cars back then, so <laughs> a day or two journey. So Paul travels to Berea about 45 miles away, and they arrive to the synagogue, and again, what's the custom? They preach to the Jews and the God-fearers who are in the synagogue, as is the custom. But we have a completely different response here in Berea than we had in Thessalonica. Verse 11, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. More noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So Paul encounters something quite different. He encounters men who are more noble-minded than those who are in Thessalonica. And Some people chalk this up to, uh, well, Thessalonica was a big city while Berea was a much smaller town, and people in smaller towns generally have a lot more sense than those in big cities. And uh, I can agree with that, but I'm not sure that I don't think that's what's going on here. The Apostle Paul, or uh, Luke, tells us that they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with great eagerness, and not only did they receive the word with great eagerness— but they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So in contrast to where Paul just came from, where out of jealousy, the Jews drive him out of town, here at the synagogue, what do they do? They receive the word with eagerness. They receive the word with eagerness. And not only do they receive the word, but they also test it. They search the scriptures daily to be sure that this is so. Here in the Bereans, there's a principle that we have to adopt as well. What did the Bereans do when Paul came along and started proclaiming the things of God to them? They accepted it. They believed it, of course, but not because of the word of Paul alone. They accepted it because they went and searched the scriptures to see whether this was so. The scriptures are the inspired word of God. The scriptures are the final authority in all things. Everything, everything must be tested against the scriptures, especially religious teaching that makes authoritative claims. Everything must be tested against the scriptures. And we're, uh, uh, and this must even be done with teachers that we like and appreciate and that we learn from. Think of who's proclaiming the gospel to them. This is the Apostle Paul. What would happen if Paul came back from the dead and preached a message in our church, right? We, uh, on the one hand, would be very tempted to say, okay, we have the authoritative teacher here. No need for me to uh, test it against it because we've got Paul. And think about who Paul is. He's an apostle. 
directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself to proclaim the good news. Paul says that, I will have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul came, and when he taught, he taught with the authority of the Lord Jesus because it was his message that he was directly conveying. Paul was not just another rabbi with his own ideas and his own interpretations. His message comes directly from God. He was able to teach authoritatively. In fact, we have his authoritative teachings here in our scriptures. But when Paul was there, and when Paul was in Thessalonica, and when Paul was continually teaching, what were these Bereans doing? They were searching the scriptures to be sure that what Paul was saying was so. They didn't just take his word for it, but they searched the scriptures, right? And guess what? They're commended as noble-minded for doing this. How often do we search the scriptures when we hear teachings and things like that? Sometimes I feel like, I'll talk about me, sometimes I'm just content to take someone's word for it, right? Uh, And again, not saying that we can't trust anyone or anything like that, but sometimes I'm content to just say, oh, well, that's a teacher I trust. I'm just going to go along with what he says there rather than searching the scriptures myself to see whether it is so. And something, and uh, that can be a great temptation. But here we have a great example in the Bereans. And these Bereans were considered noble-minded for searching the scriptures to see if what Paul said was so. So they're more than happy to welcome Paul. They're more than happy to accept his teachings, but only on the basis that they line up with scripture. And that is the only reason we should accept any teachings As I am up here, the only reason you should listen to anything that I have to say is if it lines up with this word right here. If I say anything that doesn't line up with this word right here, you are completely free to disregard it. In fact, I hope you would disregard it. Because guess what? My job is to accurately convey what is in here. Not what I think, not my own opinion, not what I would like to be so, but what this actually says. But that does require some work from the listeners as well, right? We need to know our scriptures well enough so that when we hear teaching, we're willing to run it through that filter. And yes, even good things we need to run through that filter. Even gold is tested by fire, is it not? So therefore, even the words that I'm speaking up here must be tested by that ultimate standard of scripture. If the Bereans are noble for testing the teachings of the Apostle Paul, then let us be noble like the Bereans, testing what we hear, testing everything against that ultimate standard that is the Word of God. So let's uh, finish up this chapter real quick. Uh, Verse 13, But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the Word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So the antagonistic Jews, they follow Paul. 
Unfortunately, these jealous Jews didn't think it was good enough to drive the apostles from Thessalonica. But they had to follow Paul to Berea, and they attempt to do the same thing. And sensing the danger that they brought with them, Paul is sent out to sea. Silas and Timothy are left behind with the Bereans to help establish that church, while Paul continues on and he arrives at Athens. And that's where we'll catch up with Paul next time in Athens, that famous speech on Mars Hill. But we'll not get into that today. So, in conclusion, what are some things that we can draw from this? What, do we, what can we apply to our own lives? Well, something that we need to be ready to do is, just as the apostles did, we need to be prepared to proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ from the Scriptures. In many ways, we can act as if the Scriptures have lost their power. Sometimes we're nervous to quote Scripture, especially when it would be relevant. Why? Because well, here's what might happen in my mind. I can't speak for anyone else. But this is what might happen in my mind. Oh, this person doesn't accept the scriptures and they'll just think I'm silly if I quote the scriptures to them. Right? Isn't that, just speaking for myself, that can happen. We act as if the scriptures have lost their power. And sometimes we'll look for things outside of scripture to add some legitimacy to our claims. You might have heard a message uh, uh, along these lines. Uh, five things proving that Jesus rose from the dead and we're not even going to use the Bible to do it. Why? Because we're afraid that this word does not have the power that it claims to have. Let's remember the promise in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and giving seed to the sower, and the bread to the eater, so my word will be which goes forth from my mouth, and it will not return to me empty without without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Every single time the word of God goes out, God is accomplishing his purposes. Every single time that gospel is preached, God is accomplishing his purposes. We don't have to be afraid to quote the Bible. It hasn't lost its power. We don't need to trade it for gimmicks and arguments that the world finds acceptable. Rather, we are to preach the word. As the Apostle Paul says, How will they preach unless they had been sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How is anyone going to have faith unless they have the word of Christ presented to them? And yes, we recognize just as Isaiah did, just as Paul did, there are many who will not heed that word, but it does not mean that God is not accomplishing his purposes when that word goes out. So faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. What's the second thing that we can learn from this? Well, we, just like the Bereans, must be prepared to test all things against the Bible. The Bereans set a positive example for us, searching the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was so. Are we willing to test what we hear, not just here in our church, but everything that we hear out in the world against that ultimate standard of Scripture? Are we willing to test everything against what Scripture says? If someone, preacher, 
politician, teacher, whoever else it might be, says something, are we willing to say, but the word of God says this, as the Bereans did? Are we willing to search the scriptures daily to see if what we hear is so? And if we are going to be good Bereans, we also have to have a knowledge of that scripture. We have to have a knowledge of that scripture. Psalm 119 says this, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart, so that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Are we storing up that word in our hearts so that we can put it to use later on when we encounter the challenges of the world, when we encounter uh, all kinds of different teachings? Are we willing to run that gold through the fire that is Scripture so that we can uh, get the greatest benefit from it? So those are my challenges uh, for all of us as we close out this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this passage that we have here. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the reminder that your word has power. I pray that we would recognize that power, that we would use that power, that we would be reading your word, that we would be testing all things against it, and that we would take that word out into the world and proclaim it to a world that needs it. Help us to turn the world upside down using your word to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.